0: So I have a friend who lives in Wisconsin whose name is Laura. And Laura and I, we have been friends for only a short period of time. She attended Crossway Church, the church that I came from. And Laura's about 75 or 80 years old. Now, she has a deep passion for the Lord, a really strong faith in God. But she told me a story not too long ago about a time when that faith was really tested, You see, her husband and her, they were lifelong followers of Jesus. They were people that cared very deeply about ministry, about seeing lives changed by the gospel. And at one point in her life, God began to work on her husband's heart toward going into the mission field, going overseas to share the gospel with people that did not know it. And India was the place that he felt like God was calling them to move to. Now, Laura, she has this, this great passion for people. She loved the idea of ministering to people in India, but there was one big hang-up with that, which was that she have to fly to get there. You see, Laura had this deep fear of flying. Like She wouldn't even—I heard an amen. I heard somebody say amen to that. She would not get anywhere near an airplane. But there's a little bit of a tension there, right, between like— We can go. We can have this opportunity to witness to people. We can have the opportunity to see what God's doing. But on the other hand, her fear. Her fear was so strong that for a while, her husband went and she stayed home. And he came back and told miraculous stories about how God was moving and lives were being changed and and the gospel was going out. The good news of Jesus was reaching people that it had never reached before. But she couldn't overcome that fear. So She and God did some work, and God really moved in her that, okay, I need to do this. I need to go to India. There's a reason. There's a purpose behind it, and so even though she was afraid, she decided to step out. She decided to step out in faith, but her one request of God was to say, Lord, if you would, please take away my anxiety. Please take away my fear of this so that I can go and do the best work for you possible. So she prayed this, but God didn't immediately change her heart. God didn't take away the fear immediately. Now that's okay. I mean, it's immediate. You know, you got, you got to make plans. you got to put stuff in order so you can actually go on the trip. So she's like, all right, well, God's just going to do it a different time. So she kept praying this prayer, and as the weeks ticked by, nothing changed. In fact, the only thing that happened is her anxiety, her fear, continued to grow deeper and fuller, and her anxiety was worse and worse and worse until the day that she was supposed to get on that airplane. She woke up that morning, fear just completely covering her. She began to shake and tremble. She goes to the airport thinking, God, maybe you'll, maybe you'll cure my anxiety when I get there. Maybe you'll do something amazing. Didn't happen. She goes in. She goes through baggage checks. She gets her boarding pass. Maybe now that I'm holding the boarding pass, maybe you'll take away my anxiety. Didn't happen. Goes to the gate. Maybe now that I'm at the gate, maybe you'll take away the fear. Nope, didn't happen. She's visibly shaking. Her heart rate is high. She walks through the gate and onto the plane, thinking, maybe when I cross that threshold, God's going to take away that fear. But you know what happened? God did not take away her anxiety. She sits down at her chair. She's shaking. She's beginning to panic. And then something crazy happened. The door of the plane shuts And as soon as it was final, as soon as there was no going back, God released her of her anxiety. In fact, she was talking with her husband and bargained to get the window seat so that she could look out. And her husband was like, what? Why would you actually want to look out? Aren't you afraid of airplanes? You see... For her faith to be real, she had to act. She had to be willing to go all the way. She couldn't just talk about how she wanted to minister to these people. She couldn't talk about how she was willing to get on a plane. She actually had to do it. She had to step out, be willing to go all the way in order for God to move in her life. Today, we're... Continuing our series called Faith That Works, we've been journeying through the book of James. James has had a hard message for us. If you've been here with us throughout the course of the last month or so, he's been beating us over the head every week, hasn't he? There's been some tough stuff. But the thing is, is that the tough stuff that James has been prescribing for us is not without purpose. Because, you see, when we experience the hard things but press through, God has good things on the other side for us. And if we desire to be the Christian community, the group of followers of Jesus that we are intended to be, then sometimes we have to go through the hard stuff. Well, today, we're leaning into This question of what does it look like for our faith to be active? And the title of today's sermon is The Controversy. Is is faith that works the controversy? And the reason is because there's some controversial ideas behind what's the role of faith versus the role of works. And isn't it just our faith that saves us and not works? We're going to explore that question today. Can faith actually exist without works? So if you've got your Bible, why don't you grab it? We're going to be in James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in a purple chair around you. You can grab that. We'll be on page 978 in those Bibles. Otherwise, you're welcome to follow along on the screens behind me as well. Starting at verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them. Now again, this is an interesting concept, because in other places in the New Testament, it's very clear that we are saved by faith alone, that it has nothing to do with the way that we work, that that our works don't actually save us. In the book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul, another great leader in the early church, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says this, concerning this topic, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so it looks like we have a controversial tension here. Is it faith without works that saves us? Is it faith alone? Or is it faith with works? Are works a required part of the equation? And today we're going to tackle that topic. But before that, I think we need to get a little bit broader understanding of what this word faith actually means. So faith, in our minds, I think sometimes we associate faith and belief as being the same thing. Those terms in our minds, I think, are synonymous. We think, okay, if I believe in something, that's similar to having faith in something. Now, why those two things are similar in nature, they're actually very different. You see, belief is all about ascribing yourself to a position right like i believe that i like pizza all right there's some evidence that i like pizza cuz i eat too much of it usually right it doesn't matter whether or not it's true or not true belief is simply about saying i associate myself here or here or there i believe in something but you see faith faith is something much different it's something much deeper than just belief belief is a component of faith But faith also includes a couple of other really important elements. You see, faith also incorporates confidence. You can believe in something but not be that confident about it, but faith also includes confidence. What I believe is really the truth. What I believe really means something. It has actionable impact in my life. But the third piece of faith that's different from belief alone is that faith, by its nature, is action-oriented. And so faith is belief plus confidence plus action. That's the recipe for real faith. Now we can see this occurring in an example in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a story where Jesus is interacting with his disciples. His disciples are all on a boat. Right? They're all spending time together, and Jesus walks up to them. Normally, you would not think that that would be weird, <clears throat> other than the fact that Jesus isn't walking on the shoreline. He's walking on water. So he walks up to them. From a long way off, the disciples say, Oh, my goodness, is that a ghost? And Jesus says, No, 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 guys. It's me. Don't worry about it. We're good. I'm just doing a miracle right now, so you guys just sit back and hang out and watch. That's the Jeff paraphrase, by the way. But then something interesting happens. Peter, who is one of the primary leaders in the new church, one of Jesus' followers, he says something a little crazy. He says, if it's really you, Lord, command me to come out to meet you on the water. Okay? So let's, let's talk about this for a second. So thinking about our formula, belief plus confidence plus action, Peter displays that he has belief. Now, some of it is the fact that he sees Jesus on the water. He believes that Jesus has power over nature. It's pretty obvious if you're seeing a guy walking on water towards you. But he also believes that Jesus can make him walk on water too. Right? But it doesn't just end there. Because then Peter has to have the confidence to say, Lord, if it's really you, ask me to come out there to meet you. You see, we could believe in something, We could sit back and be like, okay, God, yeah, I believe that you're real. I believe that you can make people walk on water, but I don't have any confidence in it. I've heard stories. In Peter's case, he could be like, I mean, I see it, but you're kind of God, so not totally sure you can make me do that. But you see, confidence is this really important recipe to real faith, this really important ingredient in the recipe of real faith. But then what happens? It's not okay just to have confidence. Confidence helps bridge us into action. And that's what happens with Peter. You see, Peter, he steps out of the boat and stands on the water and begins to walk toward Jesus. It was not enough for him to just believe he could do it. It was not enough for him to ask in confidence for it to happen. He had to actually step out and do it. And in that moment, Peter displayed all three of the ingredients of our recipe Belief, confidence, and action. Now, if we take that and look back at this controversial idea between what James is saying, that faith is actually about more than just belief, that it's actually about action, and we look at what Paul is saying, where he says it's faith that saves you, it doesn't actually contradict each other because the baseline ingredient within faith is action. That that's part of the story. Today, as we continue in this text, James is going to continue to lean into this idea that faith without action isn't really faith at all, that it's dead, that it doesn't even really exist. And so we're going to continue reading, starting in verse 15, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? James is really going there today, by the way. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed in God, and and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body is dead, excuse me, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James, he goes through four different logical arguments to prove his point. To answer the question that we asked at the beginning, can faith actually exist without works? And the first of these is found in verses 15 through 17, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase this. James uses some imagery of a person that walks up to another individual who is a believer, by the way, who's a follower of Jesus, but that's in a destitute type situation, that's in poverty. Now, James has made illustrations about individuals that are in this situation before, but this is a person that can't even feed themselves regularly. They can't even clothe themselves properly. Now, we live in the upper Midwest. If somebody doesn't have a good coat, you're just not going to make it very long here, right? That's the image here, that there's somebody who doesn't even have the required garb to make it. And what happens is the first person, observing this person in their poverty, walks by and says, hey, best of luck, man. I really hope somebody helps you. You know what, I'm gonna pray for you. But then they walk by and do nothing about it. And what James is saying is that a person like that, they don't have real faith. That person's faith is dead. Now, I know for us, it's not as often in America in the 21st century that we walk by people that don't have food to eat or have clothing to keep them alive. I mean, certainly that exists in our country. I'm not trying to minimize that, but it is less often that we see that. However, we still see people in deep need every single day. There's people around us that are hurting, that have lost a job that have struggled with a a disease, a diagnosis, a recent diagnosis. Somebody's been through an ugly divorce. There is so much pain and hurt in our midst. And when we just say, hey, by the way, I'm going to pray for you, or hey, best of luck with whatever it is you're going through, that we don't have faith. We're insulting that person. We're insulting God. We're not being part of the answer, part of the solution. We're being part of the problem. I think sometimes we have this idea in our minds as we approach people in this situation that, that there's sort of like this third path. So, so let me explain. So either there's the path of helping that person, or there's the path of hurting that person. But we think that there's a third path. They're like, okay, well, if, if I just check my email instead, you know, by the time I'm done checking my emails, I'll forget about it, you know? And, like, ignorance is an okay third path instead of actually engaging, forgetting about it, being ambivalent. But, see, that's not really the way that that works. Let me give you an example. This actually happened last night. So one of my daughters sat down, and we were eating dinner. And my wife, Amanda, oh, she made lasagna. And there's a few things in life that, like, really get me excited. That's one of them. Homemade lasagna lasagna from Amanda Smith. We'll start a sign-up sheet, because it's amazing. (laughs) But we had this lasagna, and my daughter, she said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to eat all of it. She helped her make it a little bit. She said, I'm going to eat all of it off of my plate. So she ate her her bread, of course, because kids eat bread first. She drank her drink, and then she started poking at her lasagna. And about 30 minutes later, she'd eaten like this much, And there's, like, this much on her plate. Like, it's not like we're asking her to eat the whole thing, right? So as good parents, trying to be good parents, we say to her, either you need to eat your dinner, or you're going to go to bed. Like, those are your two options. There's the right choice, which is eating, or there's the choice that has consequences, which is going to bed. But I don't understand where kids get this sometimes. I'm not ragging on kids, because we all do this. But she thought that there was a third path. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, maybe I can put on a pouty face and dad will forget about it. (laughs) Maybe if I throw a few tears out, maybe if I cry a little bit, maybe I won't have to eat or go to bed, right? But you see, that's not the way it works. You see, by choosing ignorance, by choosing not to make a decision, you've made a decision. Church, is the same thing for us. When we choose to ignore someone that we have the opportunity to help, that we have the ability to help, to show compassion to, when we ignore it, when we think it's somebody else's job, we are making the distinct choice to not help. And that's wrong. Now that doesn't mean, okay, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that we should... Ruin ourselves to help other people you know what i'm saying by that like it doesn't mean that like we should just Constantly be handing out twenty dollar bills to everybody that we see but when god has equipped you To help someone when god's given you the opportunity to help someone And we choose not to Then our faith Is dead That's what james is saying Let's continue. This is the second of four pathways that he takes us in arguing his point about faith. Verses 18 and 19, it says this But someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. These two verses are fascinating verses. So let's, let's talk about the first one first. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So I love this. James is dealing with the relativist in the room. With the person who says, yeah, you have your truth. Do your thing. I have my truth. I'm going to do my thing. Right? And I love that because isn't that what we face so often in our culture today? Somebody says, look, you, you have your belief system, you do your thing, have your faith in your God. I'm going to have my own truth. My own truth doesn't impact what you're doing, and you shouldn't impact what I'm doing. Just keep yourself separate from me. But I love James's response. He says, you're going to know my faith because of my action. My action will prove to you that my faith is real, that it exists, that it does something in the world. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7, this idea that that we will be known by our fruit. He says this, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. The way in which we live our lives is proven by what we do. Who we are is proven by what we do. There was an old pastor His name is John Randalls, and he was a, a pastor of a college ministry that I was involved in down in Lubbock, Texas. And he had this phrase. It was such a sticky phrase. He used to say, what's in a person oozes out of a person. What's in a person oozes out of a person. Like whatever it is that's in you will find its way out. The quality of who you are inside will always be made known. And that's what James is saying. That we... If we have real faith, if we have a real devotion to God, it will be made known by the way in which we live our lives and interact with the world. Then verse 19. Oh, this one's so interesting to me. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So just a, a quick, a brief moment about demons and demonology. So here at Gateway Church, we do believe that demons and Satan and the forces of evil are real. Okay? Now, I know that that doesn't really jive a lot of times with our modern sensibilities. We have sort of an empirical, scientific approach. And when we think about things like that, invisible forces doing this and whatever, like it kind of, kind of like, eh, maybe we won't talk about that. But it's explicit in the Bible that these beings exist. That there is an antagonistic force that's trying to push us away from God. Now, I'd never really thought about this explicitly, but I guess I'd always assumed it. I'd always thought that the reason that the demons and that Satan and that all of these fallen angels had chosen to go against God was that they believed that they actually could beat God. Like I thought, maybe the reason that they rebelled is because they actually thought they had hope of overcoming God. Maybe they had a misunderstanding about what faith means what christianity means what god is all about but james is not saying that james is saying that they believe the same kinds of things we do they understand that god is one they understand that jesus is the savior and the messiah they understand proper biblical orthodox beliefs so here's the tough question that comes out of that so what's the difference What's the difference between a demon that probably knows the Bible better than we do, let's just be real, they've lived longer than we have, existed longer, and us, if we only believe and don't have confidence and action associated with our belief? It's kind of a weird thought, right? Our faith If it's genuine faith, it's about action. It's about doing. It's about engaging the world around us. Let's continue. This is the third line of reasoning that James gives, found in verses 20 through 24. It says this, "'You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar?' You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. So Abraham, if you're not familiar with the story, Abraham is a really important figure in the Old Testament. He is the first person that God promised to make a nation out of. He said, Abraham, if you follow me, if you choose to act instead of just believe, if you choose to actually follow me with your faith, I will make you into a great nation that impacts all people for eternity. And so, Abraham, God comes to him at a different time after this promise, and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Okay? Now, sacrifice in the Old Testament looked something like this you would build a bonfire, you would kill an animal. And you would put that animal on top of the fire and burn it. So the insinuation here is, I want you to kill your child and put him on this wooden pile here and burn him. Like, I wonder how that conversation went the night at the dinner table. You know what I mean? Like, hey, hey baby, how was your day? Oh, it was good, you know. Like, Jim, he asked for a couple extra days off because he bought this new four-wheeler. He wants to take it up north, you know. And, and Sally, she told me that a couple of goats, you know, birthed a little early. They had their calves a little bit early. Oh, and by the way, God told me to kill our son. How hard would that be? And that makes my gut turn just thinking about it. But you see, Isaac, who was Abraham's son, he was no regular kid either. He was the one that God said, my promise is running through him. He's the one that's going to be the great nation. And so Abraham, he had this really challenging—I mean, I can't even imagine getting in his head. He had this terribly difficult decision to say, do I follow God or do I not follow God? Do my actions need to prove my faith by being willing to kill my son— or not? Who do I love more? What do I care for more? So as the story goes, Abraham loads up the wood, he loads up a donkey, he grabs his son, he sets out for the mountaintop, and when he gets to the top of the mountain, he puts the wood all out, he ties up his son, he sets him on top of the wood, and he's got dagger raised, ready to do what he was commanded to do by God. And God stops him at the top. And he said, no, 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 no. Don't lay a hand on the boy. I now know that your faith is real. That you're willing to give up everything for my name. But it was about his action. It was about his willingness to say, not only do I believe it, but I have confidence that what God is saying is true, and therefore I'm going to act on it. I'm going to do something about it. Now, the final illustration that James gives in this passage relates very closely to this one. You see, Abraham, everybody knew that Abraham was a man of great faith. Like, he was, he was sort of the, the everyman kind of guy. He was the person that everybody would look at and be like, Wow! Yeah! Yeah! That's totally not me. He was that guy. He was kind of like the George Washington, you know, like chopping down the the cherry tree and being honest about it. Mm, Nope, probably not for most of us, right? So Abraham was this great guy. James tells the story about Abraham, but he understands that that kind of faith might seem unattainable. So then he goes to a different Character from the Old Testament he tells the story of a different individual from Jewish history this individual was Rahab now in every possible way Rahab was different than Abraham Abraham was this great patriarch and Rahab was a prostitute Abraham was the beginnings of the Jewish people and Rahab was a Gentile she was an outsider Abraham had wealth and power and status, and Rahab was marginalized and poor and impoverished. In every way, she was different. But more relatable in some ways to us, more normal, more of the every kind of person, just struggling to make it through life, right? So in her story, a couple of spies come into her town and the reason that they are, these are Israelite spies, the reason that they come into her town is because they want to figure out, can we actually take this town? If we have a military engagement here, are we going to win or are we not going to win? And so these two spies, they come in, and Rahab, she takes them in, and she protects them. She helps them to scope out the city, and then she sends them on another way through safety. Now, this doesn't really make a lot of sense, because Rahab, we're talking about the slaughter of her people. But she had heard about God. She had heard about the God of the Israelite people group, the God that conquered, the God that saved, the God that is the greatest thing in existence. And she said, you know what? I will help you. Even though God's never talked to me like he did to Abraham, we don't have proof that God ever appeared to Rahab. I'm still going to step out in faith. Even though it means that the people that I know are going to be hurt, I'm still going to step out in faith. I'm still going to be willing. And Rahab has this beautiful reward because you see, Rahab, even though she was a Gentile, even though she was an outsider, it was through her lineage that King David, the great king of the Old Testament, came into being. And ultimately, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, traces his lineage back through this Gentile prostitute it was her faith that was lived out in action that caused her to be approved by God so back to our question can faith exist without works anybody want to take a guess no faith cannot exist without works Because our faith is proven by our works. So what do we do with this? How do we actually show what we're about? How do we engage the world with our faith properly? Well, what we need to do is we need to show our faith. We need to be willing to step up and to say, yes, I have belief. Yes, I have confidence in God. And yes, I will act. We need to show our faith by what it is that we do. Now, what does that look like? There's a couple things that I think we learn from the text today that we can apply to our lives right away to help us show our faith. The first is this: is to show radical compassion. To show radical compassion. I'm brought back to that story from early on, from verses 15 through 17 of this person that's poor and destitute. There's hurt all around us. Like you don't, you don't have to look far. To find somebody who's hurting. You don't have to ask too many questions. But the way that we engage those people, showing radical compassion. We live in a world where compassion is kind of, um, it's kind of relegated to how can compassion help me, right? Like, I'll show compassion on somebody, but I'm like, oh, okay, well, it's really about me feeling good about myself. Or, yeah, I'll, I'll give to this, you know, to this, fund or to this charity or whatever, but it's really more about my tax benefit, right? But radical compassion is different. Radical compassion is about how can I change this person's life with the way that I interact with them? You know, we're, we're heading into fall. I know it sounds like a, a silly example, but maybe raking the leaves for your elderly neighbor is one way you can show some radical compassion. Maybe taking a meal to that person that you don't even ask ahead of time, Just take them a frozen meal. Say, hey, throw it in your fridge, or in your freezer, rather. Eat it later. Sometimes when we ask, we get the, no, 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 I'm good. But radical compassion is about saying, no, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to just do it. I'm going to love on you this way. We can be a difference maker in our world when we show radical compassion. The second thing is to be courageously proactive courageously proactive. Now I'm going to try to debunk a, um, a misnomer maybe in our Christian culture. I think sometimes we think, um, and I'm guilty of this too, so I'm talking to myself. God, I will do what you want me to do when you show me what that is. Right? You don't have to raise your hand, but has anybody said that? God, just, just show me what it is. Tell me what you want me to do. Or I'm waiting on God Or I don't feel released to do that, whatever that may be. I think we should take a different approach, one of courageous proactivity. Because God already tells us very explicitly that we should love the people around us, that we should meet needs, that we should care for people. So I think we should just proactively do it. We should just get out there and love, get out there and work, get out there and do stuff. If God wants to redirect us, let him do that. I think our prayer should be, God, I see you're working here. I'm going to go join that. If you want to redirect me, you do it. But I, I see a need, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to attack that need. There's a fantastic book called Experiencing God, and it's by an author named Henry Blackaby. Um, If you've never read that book, I would highly recommend it. It is all about what does it look like for us to, to really meet God, to really see God, to experience Him. And he has this quote, and I just think it's so powerful. He says this, find out where God is working and join Him. Super simple, right? We're not talking about complicated stuff. Find out where God is working and join Him. I can tell you, church, that God is working here at Gateway. God is doing some stuff here. Maybe what that means for you, this radical proactivity, this courageous proactivity, is getting involved here. Like some of our ministry areas need more volunteers. Our kids ministry is a great example. We have fantastic volunteers in that area, but we need more. We need people that are willing to step up and to love on our next generation. In our youth ministry, Common Grounds Youth Ministry, we need more volunteers there too. We need more people that are willing to shake hands when you come in, to love on people, to show hospitality. We need more people in our cafe area. Like, you name it, we need you there. So maybe what it is for you today, maybe the action items for you to take that, that pamphlet that you got and to turn it around on the back and say, I want to serve here. I want to serve in kids' ministry. I want to help out in this area. I want to help out in hospitality. Courageous proactivity. So that we can show what our faith's all about. Because, church, the thing is, when we show what our faith is all about and when we act, then God changes people. He changes us. He changes the world around us. And I don't know about you, but... Like, I want to change the world. I want to change everything. And Gateway Church, we can do that. But it means we have to show our faith. It means we have to lean into these things. We have to show radical compassion and courageous proactivity so that the darkness can be pushed back and so that God can do what only he can do in our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this truth that when we say we have faith but we're not doing anything, that that faith is a fraud. That's a hard truth, God, because sometimes I don't want to do stuff. Sometimes I want to just believe and then go back home and turn the TV back on and veg. Sometimes God, I don't want it to be hard. I don't want it to be challenging. I don't want to have to sacrifice things. But Lord, the best life that you've promised is when we do that. And so I pray for all of us, God, for for Gateway Church, that we would be that willing to engage the world through action, not just belief, but confident action. Lord, don't leave us alone. Change us as we go, change us, Lord into the people that you would have us to be in Jesus name amen